town hall forum originates from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the town hall forum and senior pastor here at Westminster Church. Co-sponsor for today's speaker is the McKnight Foundation. Today's speaker is the fifth in this series season on building a civil society. His topic, Why Americans Hate Politics, could not be more timely the Thursday following the New Hampshire presidential primary. As a columnist for the Washington Post, E.J. Dion specializes in political issues. His articles in The New Republic and Commonweal and his books, Why Americans Hate Politics, published in 1991, and his latest book, published this month, They Only Look Dead, Why Progressives Will Dominate the Next Political Era, offer surprising and provocative perspectives on why Americans are so disenchanted with politics. Richard Reeves, biographer of, biographer of President Kennedy, describes Mr. Dion's latest book, as saying to demoralize Democrats, progressive Republicans, and independents, Lazarus, arise again. Mr. Dion is married with two children, James and Julia. This 10-day period of travel is the longest that he has ever been away from his two children. But when Mr. Dion was leaving for this trip, his three-year-old son, following a conversation with his father, said to a repairman at the house that dad was going to be away a very long time, that he'd rather be with him at home, but because his dad, but his dad was going to miss him a lot, and he said, but dad's got to do what he's got to do. <laughs> with thanks to little James, uh, we're very glad that he is here. Before joining the Washington Post in 1990, Mr. Dion covered state and local politics for the New York Times, including coverage of the 1980 presidential election. He has twice been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, first in 1986 for his coverage of the Vatican while serving as the Times Rome bureau chief, and again later for political coverage while serving as chief national political correspondent. A graduate of Harvard College and a former Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University with an Oxford doctorate in sociology. Mr. Dion brings to the survey of the American political landscape a provocative analysis of what is troubling the anxious middle of the American political electorate. Please welcome to the Town Hall Forum Mr. E.J. Dion addressing the question of why Americans hate politics. Thank you very much. I am very grateful to the Reverend Stewart for using his authority to encourage you to engage in abundant applause. And I have to say, I have never uh, spoken from a church pulpit before, and it's rather intimidating. And in your own interest, I urge all of you and the people in the radio audience to pray that the Holy Spirit might enlighten me. Um, and it's especially intimidating knowing the people I am, who have been at this forum, Archibald Cox, Maya Angelou, Cornell West, Amitai Etzioni, Amy Tan. It makes me think that I should really be out there listening instead of speaking. And whenever I feel that like that, I think of a wonderful story about Al Smith, who was campaigning once in upstate New York, and a heckler from the back of the crowd looked at him and said, tell them all you know, Al, it won't take long. And Smith sort of popped right back to the heckler and said, I'll tell them all we both know, and it won't take longer. Um, and I should also say that I, I come here with a twin disability. I am from Washington, and I am a journalist. Uh, and I discovered how dangerous that was, especially during the 1992 campaign when whenever you went to a Republican event, you would often hear the following story told of President Bush having that beautiful little granddaughter in the White House. And she was sleeping and then got waken up by this terrible, uh, loud clap of thunder. And she got very scared and went in to see her grandfather. And President Bush said, don't worry, 
uh, whenever someone tells a terrible lie, God thunders in the heavens. So she felt better and went back to bed. And then about 2 o'clock in the morning, this rolling thunder happened. It lasted about a minute or a minute and a half. And she was really frightened and went in to see her grandfather again. And President Bush looked at her and said, that's okay, dear. The Washington Post just started rolling off the presses. Uh, and so I come to you with a certain amount of humility, I hope. Um, I am speaking from a pulpit, so I thought it was important to sort of start with two readings. Uh, and these are not scriptural readings, but they are from Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian. Uh, and his, the first uh, citation is Niebuhr's statement that man's capacity for good makes democracy possible and that man's capacity for evil makes democracy necessary. And one of the things I'd like to talk about and, and where I'm going to end up is how I think the mood of cynicism toward the possibilities of democratic government uh, is very destructive and not only that but ultimately uh, very dangerous. Uh, the other Niebuhr citation that I particularly like is when he declared that original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian church. And uh, I, I take that because I think that when we think about our frustrations with politics, our tendency is to believe that this particular class of politicians we have out there now and have had out there uh, for the last 10 or 15 years uh, is somehow much worse than the class of politicians we had had in the past. Yet, I don't think there is that much evidence that today's politicians are demonstrably more venal or corrupt than those of a generation or a century ago. Uh, in fact, with formal ethics codes being what they are, uh, they at least have to behave better if they don't want to go to jail. And I think that what is sort of roiling our politics right now uh, is not just the flaws of any given set of individuals. Um, yet I think that our politics has indeed uh, become mired in recrimination uh, and accusation. And the accusatory tone is not limited to issues of whether somebody uh, is, um, being, is unfaithful to his wife or on the take. It covers almost all aspects of a politician's life. It's not limited to a current affair or hard copy. It happens even in the so-called respectable press and respectable television, even though we don't uh, get called that so much anymore. I think the United States is in the midst of a kind of politics of moral annihilation where destroying your opponent is the ultimate goal. It's not enough anymore simply to defeat or out-argue somebody. Uh, the goal really is to make your adversary uh, look like Hitler or Stalin, the Marquis de Sade or Al Capone. This trend, I think, has especially hurt uh, President Clinton, uh, but I don't think it's limited to him. Uh, indeed, many Republicans who attack Clinton say they are only avenging the damage that was done to their heroes, uh, Clarence Thomas or Robert Bork. Remember, Clarence Thomas has now become a slogan almost akin to Remember Madrid for those who supported the Republican cause in Spain. The result, I think, is a peculiar kind of politics of all against all. Now, I think the sources of this, as I say, do not lie with the failures of individuals. I think it's because politicians themselves rightly sense uh, the depth of the public's disenchantment. Um, that they know that coming to the voters and trying to sell solutions or saying anything positive about themselves will have no credibility. And so, and if you know the public is mad and you know that they will, it will discount your own proposed solutions, the best tactic is to denounce the other guy. The late Senator Sam Irvin, whom most of us remember, uh, once gave sound advice to lawyers in a difficult case. If the law is against you, he said, pound the evidence. If the evidence is against you, pound the law. And if they're both against you, pound the table. And politicians now uh, find the best solution involving pounding each other. Um, I think that this, this notion that uh, attack politics lies at the heart of the kind of thing we're going to see this year is very well known among political consultants. I just cite Joe Gaylord, a close aide to Newt Gingrich, who wrote a brilliant how-to textbook for Republican candidates. His advice was go negative early and never back off. And the most interesting thing he said in this uh, uh, guide to candidates is for them to remember that important issues can be of limited value. And now I don't cite Gaylord to say that he is particularly 
uh, evil because he's not. That this advice he gave his candidates is actually very sound advice. Uh, and it's advice that's being uh, given uh, constantly every day by political consultants. A conservative writer, David Frum, noted in his fine book, Dead Right, uh, that if you listen to Rush Limbaugh or read the editorial columns of the Wall Street Journal, you will hear politicians described in language that we applied once to only the most hardened criminals. Now, I think the reason we're here is because the country is really being roiled by sort of four crises uh, simultaneously. And I, I use the word crisis knowing that we journalists are always accused of using that word so often that we sometimes threaten to create a crisis crisis. But I think that they apply in this case. And I think the United States is clearly passing through an economic crisis that involves the global economy and economic change. And I think what's important to see in that crisis is that we're not talking about a Great Depression. We're talking about a time in which, in fact, there is large-scale economic growth, a lot, of e a lot of creativity going on, a lot of new invention. But at the same time, a very large chunk of our population finds its income skidding, uh, the benefits at work uh, being cut back. You can tell a lot about a political era by the jokes that people tell. And one of the jokes I've heard a lot lately is of the person who says, yeah, I know the new economy is creating a lot of jobs. I hold three of them. And I think that feeling is rampant in the electorate out there. I think the economic crisis is joined by a political crisis. And that's not just the political crisis created by the influence of special interest money or, or corruption in the system, although that's part of it. I think it's also a crisis created by the fact that national governments have less and less power to control what goes on uh, within their own borders. What the decision uh, of a German bank can have much more impact on you and your job than whatever your state legislator does on a given day or a given month or in a given year. The political crisis is joined by a moral crisis. And I think in my book, my new book, one of the things I take liberals to task for uh, is leaving so much of the moral talk in our politics to the religious right. And I think one of the reasons the religious right has gained ground is because lots of Americans are hungry for serious moral conversation about politics and they haven't found enough of it at other points on the political spectrum. I think the religious right has brought issues to the fore that lots of other people in the country are genuinely concerned about. Family breakup, crime, the question of what values children are being taught. But I also think that the, the, this crisis has been defined much too narrowly and that for a lot of Americans, the crisis comes down to President Clinton's favorite line from 1992, talking about how he would fight for people who work hard and play by the rules. At this point in our history, Americans don't know what the rules are anymore. Uh, they do what they believe is right and what the society says is right. They work hard, they're loyal to their employers, and they wake up one morning and discover that they've been fired uh, after 15 years and wonder what is the ethic that this society uh, is living by and what is the justice uh, in what happens to them. And so finally, we have these three crises joined with uh, the crisis over who are we in the world anymore. We have a remarkably confused debate over foreign policy where people who were once enemies uh, find themselves agreeing on certain foreign policy issues and not others. Pat Buchanan and Abe Rosenthal on the same side in Bos on the Bosnian uh, issue. Uh, Tony Lewis and George Will also on the same side of that issue. These are sort of, needless to say, unusual alliances. Now, I think the reason politicians have so much trouble addressing these problems is because they're hard problems and that the voters having a history of skepticism with the answers that have been offered over these last 15 years uh, are inclined to punish, they're inclined to disbelieve, and they have a legitimate source of anger because they tend to look at politicians and say, um, that they have not really been straight about dealing with these problems. I think there's another problem as well, which is that Republicans and Democrats, I think, have by turn been uh, less than fully candid about what their project was, and they have not always delivered on what, they, on the, what their slogans uh, implied. One of my favorite uh, encounters between politicians was a British politician who said to another, he comes before you and says, I have principles, and if you don't like these, I have other principles. Um, and I think on the Republican side, what you saw for 15 years, starting with Ronald Reagan, uh, was an intense and angry 
uh, attack on government, which said the government was the root of all evil, uh, that it was not the solution, it was the problem. And yet at the end of 15 years, in fact, many conservatives looked at what they had done and said, we haven't really shrunk government at all. Uh, Ronald Reagan did not reduce Medicare. Indeed, Medicare spending went up, Social Security spending went up. And so a lot of conservative sense that you had an anti-government party that really didn't do much to tear down government. On the Democratic side, what you often had are pro-government candidates who pretended at election time uh, that they were as anti-government as the Republicans, albeit in a kinder and gentler way. And so when the voters were confronted with an anti-government party that didn't do what they said, and a pro-government party that pretended that they thought government was just as bad as the other guys, uh, it is not surprising that they arrived at the cynical point that they had. Now, I actually think there's some good news on the way, and the reason, and I believe that not only because I believe that a kind of politics which I identify with uh, is uh, in for a comeback, but more particularly because I think the debates since the 1994 election really have helped clarify uh, the choices before the voters. I think that the Republicans finally took their anti-government rhetoric to its logical conclusion. And I think when you looked at the budget fight, they really did make an effort to say, yes, finally, we will deliver uh, this smaller government uh, that we've always promised. Their problem was, I think, that they badly misread their mandate from the 1994 campaign, which I think was more a comment on what the Democrats had failed to do uh, after the 92 election than it was a sharp turn to the right. And indeed, when the country began looking at what the Republican Congress proposed specifically in Medicare and Medicaid and on education spending and in regulating the environment, many of the people who had supported them said, wait a minute, uh, this is not exactly what we had in mind uh, when we voted for you. I think the Democrats, in turn, are being called upon, Democrats and I think ultimately progressive Republicans too, are being called upon to defend their project, not simply in rhetorical terms at election time, uh, but for the long term. Because I think what Newt Gingrich and Dick Armey and the Republicans in the House in particular are up to uh, is an attack on the entire progressive tradition that has dominated our politics since the days of Teddy Roosevelt. And that tradition, I think, is a tradition that asserts that democratic government is different in kind from dictatorship. It's a tradition that says that where dictatorships oppress, democratic governments can actually liberate the capacities of individuals. When I was writing my book, I used to keep a little letter from Dick Army next to my computer, and Army sent me his book with a, with a note that read, Dear EJ, hope you enjoy this. It will give you an idea of what I think, comma, and what I think of what you think. And I appreciated his candor, and I read the book very carefully. And what you found in this book was really the view that there is no distinction to be made between democratic government and dictatorship. At one point, he compares the New Deal and the New Frontier with five-year plans and Mao's great leap forward. And that is sort of making FDR and JFK the equivalent of Stalin and Mao. And I don't think, I think it's very important to see that view of government as lying at the heart of this new project, because I don't think it's a belief uh, that Americans share. Uh, whether it was through the civil rights laws to lift a burden off the back of African Americans or through the GI Bill, uh, which sent millions of people to college, we have always had a view that government can step in and make people freer than they were before government intervened. Uh, and I think that view, in fact, was once dominant in both political parties. I think with Dwight, you saw it with Dwight Eisenhower, who really engaged in two of the largest public spending programs in our history, the interstate highway system and the student loan program that helped people like me uh, go to college. And so I think that by being as radical as they have been, um, the new Republican majority is really forcing progressives and liberals in all parties to take, a, take stock of what their purpose really is in politics uh, and to become uh, more aggressive and I think more importantly more candid in saying just uh, why they are there. I, I think also there have been some events that have shaken us up in some very useful ways and they're tragic events but our response to them uh, has been um, in, I think in the long run good for our country. I mean, if you look at the response of the country to that horrible bombing uh, in Oklahoma City, you saw an enormous number of contradictory responses uh, that sort of led us to sort of be silent for a bit and to think. There was some flip and loose talk about angry white men and how important they were. 
Uh, but there was also much more careful attention, I think, to the political and economic worries that had bred such frustration well beyond the confines of race or gender. There was useful reporting on, how, on the right-wing militias uh, and how Americans who wanted nothing to do with those gunmen shared some of their anger and skepticism toward the federal government. There was also some frank talk about what the, what the sorts of things that those federal workers who worked inside that building did. Worked aimed at helping people whether to get their social security checks or veterans benefits or farm payments or student loans. The possibility of competence and compassion on the part of government uh, was underscored by the response to the crisis. Uh, whether by firefighters or rescue teams or federal law enforcement agents, suddenly bureaucrats became human beings and I don't think I'm missing something to say that I heard the word bureaucrats kind of drop out of our language for at least a few weeks after uh, that bombing. And we saw as well the response of civil society, of those institutions that are neither part of the state or part of government, the churches and voluntary uh, institutions um, who work together with government. And lastly, there was a fierce debate over whether the kinds of things we say in politics are actually encouraging uh, extreme behavior. President Clinton said that people should examine the consequences of what they say and the kinds of emotions they're trying to inflame. Uh, Newt Gingrich, not surprisingly, was furious at any implication that he or conservatives were implicated in this, and with some justice. He said it's grotesque to suggest that the advocates of smaller government uh, were, had anything to do with this. But the issue, I think, was not one of simply implicating Gingrich or any other mainstream conservative. The issue was rather whether this constant and unrelenting attack on government and its capacities uh, was encouraging an attitude that was really destructive to all of us and not simply because it promoted the bombing of a building. And I think the anger in the militias themselves also told us that there really is a radical disjunction between the kind of political talk we hear all the time, including from those of us who are journalists, and what the country wants to experience politics as being. Uh, there's a wonderful political philosopher called Glenn Tinder uh, who argued that what Americans are really longing for is something he called the attentive society. And he said that the attentive society conceives, um, conceives of itself as a place where freedom has infinite value, but freedom is understood as a pathway, not a destination. Uh, understanding freedom that way, I think, tells us why people are so impatient with so much of the political talk. One, freedom, uh, one reason freedom is degraded today, writes Tinder, is that serious speech, which is speech in search of truth, is relatively rare. Freedom of speech, he says, is most energetically and conspicuously used for advertising and electioneering for activities based on the assumption that speech is an expedience expedient in the service of profits and power and that truth is the extreme outer limit rather than the central purpose. Now I, I love that last part. Imagine thinking of truth not as the point of talk but as how far can you go before you cross the line into untruth. This test, speech in search of truth, applying that to the day-to-day -day writing and talk in politics and journalism uh, would have a revolutionary impact. Tinder follows the writers Christopher Lash and the great philosopher John Dewey in seeing public life not simply as a realm of combat, but as a place in which citizens can engage in a common search for understanding. Tinder writes, a society in which people listen seriously to those with whom they fundamentally disagree, an attentive society uh, is the proper setting for freedom. An attentive society would provide room for strong convictions but its defining characteristic would be a widespread willingness to give and receive assistance on the road to truth. Imagine if political campaigns operated according to that principle. Christopher Lash said the same thing when he said that democracy may not be the most efficient form of government, but it ought to be the most educational form of government. The whole point of democratic politics uh, is to uh, help people solve problems. Um, politics, in other words, I think should be, we should not hate politics uh, as a country. I think this is antithetical to our tradition and is entirely wrong for solving any of the problems we care about. It will be at the center of any efforts we make to navigate the current moral and economic crises. There is no escaping politics because there is no escaping the fact 
that the rules established in government, in the marketplace, in the workplace, in the neighborhood will powerfully influence what even the most individualistic souls will be able to do. Some rules make it harder for families to raise their kids, others make it easier. Some rules make it easier for individuals to seize opportunities, others will get in the way. Some rules encourage charity, generosity, community-mindedness, community others discourage them. I think instead of pretending that we can live in a rule-free society, uh, we have to decide how we're going to make the rules. I think such a society, the attentive society described by Glenn Tinder, depends not on rejecting democracy but embracing it, not on hating politics but welcoming its challenges, its obligations, and its promise. Politics and government cannot raise children, cannot write love songs, cannot create computer languages, cannot invent the technology after the microchip or discover a cure for cancer. But politics and government do shape the conditions under which such, uh, under which such acts of creativity happen. Politics has everything to do with building a more just, more civil, and more open society. Those who rally to our progressive tradition the cause of those who believe democratic government has the capacity to improve society always understood this and their time has come again. Uh, the Reverend Stewart in a fine sermon a couple of years ago cited John Winthrop as calling upon us to make each other's condition our own always having before our eyes our community as members of the same body. I think that's a fine definition of the obligations of democratic citizenship and as between our current cynicism and a more productive and hopeful view of our democratic capacities, I think the American people will always finally return to hope. And I think we're on the verge of that happening again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Dion. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Today's guest is Mr. E.J. Dion, who has just spoken on the topic, Why Americans Hate Politics. Mr. Dion writes as a columnist for the Washington Post. While the ushers collect the questions here in the sanctuary at Westminster, those of you listening on the radio may call in a question for Mr. Dion by dialing area code 612-332-3421. Mr. Dion, if you would please return to the podium. We will begin with uh, the period of questions. Pardon me. One of your colleagues at the Post, George Will, in uh, an editorial which appeared this morning in the Star Tribune here in Minneapolis says that that Patrick Buchanan mixes a cocktail of resentments and ignorance unmatched since George Wallace went marauding. How real is the danger that uh, Mr. Buchanan can put together a new coalition that is based on fear, ignorance, and rage that would displace the kind of historically wide and moderate progressive center as the mainstream of American politics? See, the temptation here is to decide whether I'm being asked to defend George Will or Pat Buchanan. <laughs> uh, um, I guess my view is a, is a little different from George Will's. I mean, I think that implicit in his view is the notion that there is something, I think in, in that quotation he talks about how there is this distinction between democracy and the market, and that if you believe that the market can be unfair uh, and turn to government to relieve burdens on some people, then suddenly you're against the market. And I think what Buchanan is speaking to, and I'll get to a little bit on him in a moment, but I think what Buchanan is speaking to is the sense that we have always had as Americans that the free market doesn't work well in the absence of rules and regulations. Anyone who went through the Great Depression uh, certainly recalls that. And that I think that those who believe in a free market economy uh, need both the values that come outside of capitalism, which is values created in places like this, in the churches and the families of the country, because capitalism cannot survive on its own. It doesn't produce its own value system. It depends on what we've come to call the institutions of civil society. I also think capitalism markets do not produce perfect outcomes, and I think somehow 
in arguing about this, we somehow pretend that e if you believe in the market, you have to believe it produces, it produces perfect outcomes. It never has and never will. And this is where I have my sort of arguments with uh, Dick Army that we have turned to government to make markets work, to provide benefits such as uh, health coverage that the market would not provide. Senior citizens, uh, most senior citizens could simply not afford the price of health insurance uh, if the government did not step in to provide it. I think that's something we've remembered. As for Pat Buchanan, I think that what's important about the Buchanan phenomenon is that he has shown how far the agenda of politics has moved off the small government balanced budget uh, agenda of the last Congress, that suddenly all the Republican candidates are starting to talk about living standards, because I think he is speaking to the resentments of an awful lot of people out there, uh, who may, some of whom agree with him on social issues and moral issues, and some of whom don't. And I think you can see the impact of Pat Buchanan when you saw Senator Dole last week talking about how corporate profits were so high and average wages were declining 5% a year. This was kind of surprising thing to hear Bob Dole say. Now, I think in the Buchanan cocktail, where George Will is entirely right, is there are a series of resentments that he can indeed, uh, he does indeed arouse, uh, that are very dangerous, and that, that, that uh, it would be a terrible tragedy if our country uh, went down the road that Buchanan would take us on some of these issues, such as uh, immigration. Um, I think it falls to progressives uh, to take up their responsibility for speaking uh, for the very people that uh, Pat Buchanan is arousing in this campaign. I think progressives in this country have always managed to uh, address the problems of, uh, of people who were down on their luck, who were suffering, who needed some relief, and to do so in ways uh, that were, in a sense, moderate and practical. This is what FDR did. And indeed, it's one reason why lefties often accuse FDR of saving capitalism. That's exactly what Roosevelt did. Uh, and he did it by addressing the very resentments that Pat Buchanan is addressing. So that I think it's important to take the resentments seriously and the anger seriously and to find a different way to address them and not to pretend that they shouldn't be addressed. Thank you. One member of the audience asks um, how you define progressive and how you think the various presidential candidates fit your definition. Yeah, I, I've, I've been wandering around the country talking about this book the last couple of weeks, and it's a question that always comes up. And I'm often tempted simply to say a progressive is a liberal who's looked at the polls. Um, but I use the word progressive because I'm trying to identify a tradition in our country that goes back a long way. I think progressives and liberals and moderate Republicans have sometimes accepted the definitions put on them by their opponents, that somehow they are the enemy of normal Americans, as Speaker Gingrich once put it, referring to the Clintons. And I think this is entirely a mistake. It's not only a mistake tactically, it's a mistake because a view that democratic government can be used to solve problems, to resolve disputes, uh, to improve society, this is a view we Americans have always adhered to. It's what Dwight Eisenhower believed in, it's what Teddy Roosevelt believed in, and it's also what FDR Harry Truman uh, and lots of other people in our country believed in. And so I'm using the word progressive specifically to try to revive uh, a certain amount of confidence uh, in our capacity to govern ourselves and to use government effectively. Uh, to identify, uh, there, are, there are lots of different, so my view of progressivism is a kind of broad church and it would include sort of everyone is in a sense from Paul Wellstone to John Chafee. Uh, and I think because what these what these folks agree on uh, is the notion that we don't have to give up on social problems just because the market doesn't solve them, uh, and we don't have to give up on government just because government uh, makes mistakes. I mean, we, the Ford Motor Company produced the Edsel. Government sometimes produces Edsels. Progressives have to be smart enough to abandon the Edsel when they uh, create one. Thank you. One person asks, what evidence can you present that Americans ever thought very highly of politicians? 100 years ago, they weren't, weren't they considered scoundrels? And in the 1960s, government was big brother. Um, as Richard Nixon used to say, I'm glad you asked that question, whoever you are. Um, I, I make two points on that. The, the first is one of the arguments in my new book is, in fact, that our time very much resembles a period uh, after the Civil War 
uh, and before the beginning of the progressive era, the Gilded Age. And then as now, you had the same sense of public frustration with politicians, with government, with economic anxiety, um, and, you, and lots of Americans thought democracy was dying because we were creating these large industrial combinations. State legislatures were being bought off by the lobbyists for the railways. And actually, if you go back and look, uh, some of the things say the Illinois Grange said, if you rub off Illinois Grange and write the words Ross Perot, you wouldn't know the difference. So it's true that we have this uh, tradition of mistrust. The reason I think that we are in a similar time is our response to that mistrust back then was to say, as a country, we need to deal with some of the underlying problems of this transition to industrialism uh, and not just uh, let things go on as they were, which is why the populists arose and why the Roosevelt and Wilson administrations happened and ultimately the New Deal. Uh, so that the, the answer to the question is yes, we have gone through these periods before, but we have, and that we have a natural mistrust of unlimited government. There's, there's hardly anyone on the American political spectrum from left to right who believes in unlimited government. We all believe in limited government. The issue is what do you use limited government for? The last point I make briefly is that we have gone through times, however, when we had a lot more confidence in government than we did now. If you looked at measures of the popularity of uh, government and politicians back in the 1950s and 1960s, their prestige was so high that we actually used words like public servants. And the polls show consistently that Americans actually thought their democracy worked um, and thought public officials were doing a good job. And I think the reason for that was that government came out of the Great Depression and the New Deal with enormous prestige. In the Great Depression, the business class is the class who, that lost popular influence and government was seen as fixing some of the problems. And of course, government led the war uh, against fascism and, and Americans were very proud of that triumph. So that I think we have gone through, we always mistrust government sensibly, but we've gone through periods of having more or less confidence in it. One person asks, how can we make it more feasible for good people to choose to get into politics? Well, you know, following my Reinhold Niebuhr uh, injunction, you know, I guess we're all good and bad people at the same time. And I'm not 100% I'm not certain that a whole new class of people, a different kind of person, would uh, uh, solve these problems unless they had the right ideas for solving them. Uh, what I would say is that whenever somebody, I hear somebody announcing that they don't intend to, the, uh, to run for president, uh, my instinct is to think there is a sane person because the most insane act I can think of uh, is choosing to enter this crazy system we have created, including the press, including the political adversaries who will pummel you uh, mercilessly. Um, and I don't see an easy way around that except having a period of successful government. In other words, I think that it's a kind of chicken and egg question, and I would argue that voters will continue to be mistrustful and therefore encourage negative campaigning, even though they will say they are against it, until they actually themselves develop some faith that this democratic project is worth something and that politicians uh, actually should be encouraged to saying what they would do and not simply how rotten the other guy is. It's really, I mean, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because we're, we're called as citizens to be, to be critical. Uh, but in the extreme, we, it, it turns into a right, well, I think of annihilation. No, that's exactly right. And I think that, that one of the things we have to think about ourselves is, you know, what, what political consultants will say all the time that is entirely true is that voters in the abstract are always ready to say they hate negative campaigning and voters in the concrete always respond to it. Now, the, uh, the other point I'd make just in passing is that I think there's a difference between sort of a certain style of negative campaigning where you would say he's wrong on the issue and I'm right, and I think that's fair enough. Uh, and the kind of trivialization that takes place where uh, people look at past votes in, the, in Congress on trivial matters and imply that someone is a scoundrel for having voted this way, which led to an increase in congressional pensions and so on, when the vote didn't even have anything to do with it. So, you know, vigorous debate, I think, is different from um, sort of, is different from nastiness, and vigorous debate over real issues is different from invented debate over phony issues and trivial issues. One person asks, is anti-NAFTA and anti-GATT an economic issue used as a ploy in this election? for instance, by Mr. Buchanan? Or is it a new trend toward isolationism by conservatives? 
I think in a way neither um, It would be my answer to that. I mean, I think that there are a lot of Americans who have always mistrusted free trade. I mean, our country was built on protection. It's something I think we forget in the current debate, that we were a protectionist country right through the Great Depression. Some people think that raising tariffs helped uh, deepen the Depression or bring it on, but the fact is this strain is not at all new in our history, and lots of our presidents, I mean, Abraham Lincoln was a protectionist. Um, so I, th th I would say that, and that I don't think it's a ploy on Buchanan's part because I think on this issue he actually believes what he says. I think where it could be seen as a ploy uh, is that I'm not sure proposing the kind of tariffs he proposes would really answer the problem of that person thrown out of, out of work, uh, say, after 15 years of service. It may not be an answer to these layoffs. A lot of the problems that American workers face now are not caused by imports. They're caused by technological change where you are not replaced by a worker halfway around the world. You're replaced by a machine. You're replaced by new technology. Uh, someone once said that uh, the local comedian down the street uh, is not, uh, is, the local comedian down the street is essentially put out of business by Jay Leno on television. I mean, there are lots of factors in this new economy that are creating different kinds uh, of unemployment. So that I think it, you can see it as something much, it's a much less of a full answer to the problem Buchanan is describing than, than Buchanan is pretending it is. And I think that's what Buchanan is going to be questioned about in the coming weeks. There are two questions here regarding the media. I think I'll ask the first one, and if you cover the second, we'll move on to something else, and if not, we'll ask it also. Please speak to the media's failure to search for truth in favor of simplistic commentary at the boxing match of politics, both print and broadcast media. Yeah, and in my new book, I, I had written this book where I talked about Republicans and Democrats and was kind of critical of both of them, and I decided if I'm going to bash them, I should bash us too. Uh, and so I think it's a fair question. I mean, I, I identify a number of problems in what we do. Um, one of them is described by this question, uh, and I think that, that in pol at political campaign time, we have become so obsessed with sort of what goes on inside a campaign uh, that people forget what the campaign is about. Now, some of the reasons for this were good. Theodore White wrote those great books on the making of the president where he took us inside the campaign. Joe McGinnis wrote another book called The Selling of the President, which took us inside different aspects of the campaign. And journalists decided rightly uh, that they needed to do routinely tell voters what was happening uh, to them as a result of campaigns. The problem, problem is that if all we do is to explain to politicians, uh, to voters, how politicians are manipulating them, what we do in the end is, as the writer Todd Gitlin put it, turn voters into the cognoscenti of their own bamboozlement. Uh, and I think in the process of doing that, we don't remind people what the election is about. Um, I think the second thing is we have, uh, in, in journalism, all sense of rules and authority no longer exist anymore. And I don't really have a good solution to this. That if something appears on hard copy or in one of the tabloids, uh, gradually the so-called respectable press backs into reporting it, not by saying we don't report that sort of thing, but we do have to report the political impact of that sort of thing, since that sort of thing is having a uh, big political impact, and then it's off to the races. And I think that's a problem we have to think about, and I don't have a good solution to it. But I think the third thing is uh, that we have to sort of learn some lessons from the rise of talk radio. And uh, I talk about Rush Limbaugh as the wrong answer to the right question. And I think the right question is, why is it that conventional journalism in newspapers on television uh, does not adequately um, does not adequately engage voters uh, in a real debate. I think people turn to talk radio because they want to get into the debate. They, they don't sense from us um, uh, that we're giving them the kind of information that would draw them into the debate or show that it's important. And I think the this, this Star Tribune actually proposed some ways of reorganizing the campaign and campaign journalism um, that have some promise of forcing us to look much harder uh, at what we do and seeing if we can um, you know, if we can encourage a kind of debate that would actually make an election for once an enlightening and even gratifying experience. The second question, who now watches the press like the press watches politicians? Have Americans lost the ability to evaluate information, i.e. entertainment, objectively? Well, I can tell you from my mail that lots of people watch the press. Um, 
and I know, for example, Rush Limbaugh watches the press. I get a lot of mail now and again from his listeners. Um, I think that, in fact, what you're, you're seeing, I, I, this is a, a period of immense self-criticism of the press. You may think we're all arrogant, and maybe we are, but in fact, you know, Jim Fallis' new book is an example of that. My colleague Howie Kurtz's book on talk radio is an example of that. I think there is this a, a kind of crisis in journalism and what I write in my book is that uh, in a sense we journalists don't know what we're doing anymore in a literal sense. We used to have an ethic of partisanship back in the last century where most newspapers were paid for by political parties. We then went to this ethic of objectivity, uh, I put that in quotes, um, where we thought where newspapers sold their audiences to advertisers and there had to be, therefore had to be neutral and objective uh, in what they did. Objectivity started losing ground first in the Vietnam period when reporters started worrying about whether they were simply reporting what government officials said and not the truth. And now I think there's a real crisis going on about what is our role in this system um, because we don't, we're not quite, uh, uh, we don't quite believe in objectivity in the same way. We certainly claim not to believe in partisanship. Uh, and I think what people are trying to figure out is two things simultaneously. Is there a way of sort of preserving an ethic of fairness that somebody like Walter Lippmann advocated? And at the same time, is there a way of our acting uh, inside the democratic debate the way John Dewey would have us act so that we can sort of promote not phony argument, not the sort of shouting that lots of people don't like, but actually real argument. Uh, you know, everybody says they're looking for consensus, but somebody once said that the hardest thing to do is to reach true disagreement. And again, I'd emphasize, I don't think the problem is necessarily that we're having too many arguments, it's that we're having too many arguments about things that aren't the real things we have to argue about. And that's something the press can help us get to. Two related questions. Is it fair to state that the federal government has been corrupted by lobbyists? And what can be done about lobbyists? And the other, what is the difference between a campaign contribution and a bribe? Oh, that's an excellent question. I, I think, um, I think sort of political reform, meaning reforming the system of contributions, is sort of the, is the precondition to all other reforms. In other words, I don't think it's I don't think that every member of Congress is bought off by every campaign contribution. I know one member of Congress who once said that being on the banking committee is great that because there's so much money on every side of every issue that you can always vote your conscience. Um, but. <laughs> Um, you know, so I don't think every dime corrupts the system, but I think that we have developed a system uh, where the weight of money is is overwhelming. And and I object to the system sort of for a funny reason, which is you know one of the reasons I object to it is not sort of that the money automatically pushes legislation in one direction or not, although that clearly happens, uh, but also because politicians end up spending so much time raising money, and one of the results of that is they spend so much time with people who have lots of money to give uh, or have very particular interests before Congress or both. Um, and when you've heard some of these folks retiring from all sides of the political spectrum, they say, I just got tired of having to spend so much of my time uh, raising money. And so I think, I mean, I agree with the premise of the question that we do have to uh, reform this system of financing political campaigns. Uh, I don't think political change is impossible absent that. Um, but I think that any sort of political change we get in a progressive direction will have to end up doing that. Teddy Roosevelt, a hundred years ago, basically said progressives are going to have a lot of trouble if they don't reform the system. And he was the first proponent of campaign reform. I think, you know, a hundred years later, we might as well admit that Teddy Roosevelt was right. Uh, a quick, a quick answer to this, this question. Somebody's looking for your crystal ball if you have one. What's your prediction? for this year's presidential election? Um, well, I should say that I never lost money betting on Bill Clinton. Actually, Newt Gingrich still owes me from a bet on the 1992 election. Uh, so I'm always inclined to double up that bet. Uh, my own sense of it is that uh, the one candidate the White House is worried about and that, uh, that I think they're right to be worried about is Lamar Alexander, partly because people don't quite know uh, how he's going to play, partly because he's sort of dull light uh, he has lots of government experience, but isn't so enmeshed in the system in Washington that he can't sort of try to run as an outsider. He's also very bright. Um, so I think Alexander could give him a race. I think the problem with my laying the bet on Clinton is the following, that Clinton has 
built up a large lead over the Republicans, but there are a lot of people out there who dislike the president. I, I haven't seen on the uh, sort of dislike of a president uh, on the right uh, since you had a comparable phenomenon on the left and uh, among liberals with Richard Nixon. There is really a lot of hostility to the president. And he never seems to get over 52% in the polls. So I think there's a kind of ceiling on him. And so that's the sort of political problem he'll face. But as I say, I'll, I'll stick with my old bet and see if Gingrich will pay me off. <laughs> Thank you. One, le one last question. The town hall forum, we just have one more minute. The town hall forum is not only about the issues that we face as a society, but also uh, about the people who come to speak, its voices of conscience. Can you tell us uh, briefly, obviously, some of the influences that uh, bring you to this perspective? Yeah, a friend of mine asked me the other day if uh, having kids had had any effect on the way, any change on the way that uh, I looked at the world and looked at politics. And one of the things I told him is that um, I grew up in a community um, you know, called Fall River, Massachusetts, which is an old factory town about 50 miles south of Boston. And it's a wonderful community. It's also a community that's always had terrible economic problems. But the world I grew up in in the 50s was a place where um, lots of kids, where we did not sort of have uh, so acute a sense of class division, where lots of the kids I went to school with um, whose, regardless of what their parents did, really had a sense of confidence uh, that it was possible for them to get somewhere in life and that we, didn't, we weren't sort of stratified quite so much by what kind of consumer goods we could buy. Uh, and we, we all were, felt we were part of a community, and I think we were in a sense, and that I desperately want my kids to have some of that sense, and I'm very worried uh, that as a country, because of the kinds of inequalities uh, we are building up, uh, that my kids are not going to enjoy that kind of uh, world that, that I thought was uh, very positive for our country. And for me, a lot of this came from the church, uh, that I was raised Catholic, and I was inf influenced by Catholic social teaching, uh, which sort of led me down a road that said that, that uh, in a sense, issues such as family values and is issues such as social justice were part of the same issue, uh, and that you had to be concerned about one if you were concerned about the other. And then lastly, I would just say I was influenced by a particular people. Reinhold Niebuhr is somebody who I always thought spoke to me uh, in having sort of both a sense of confidence about democracy's possibilities and a sense of realism about what human beings were like and, and our limitations. Uh, and so, and, and I could list a lot of other people who have taught me a lot of things, but that's where I think I'd leave it. Mr. Dion, thank you so much for being with us at the Town Hall Forum. Please uh, take our word of thanks back to James and, and Julia. And thank you uh, very much, and thank you all so much. I appreciate thank it you. very much.